Okay, I just have to tell you all this. From back there, I was looking this way when that video played because it was the wrong video. So in the booth, they were like, <gasps> it was funny. It was so funny. <laughs> Things happen. We meant to show you the Sprouts video, not the Ignite video, but as Bill said, I'll just reiterate, we would love to have you come on board in our children's ministry program uh, for the four o'clock service, but any service as well. If, if you're, you know, you've been sitting out there and those, the kid thing just kind of just resonates with you, uh, come talk to us, write it on your card. Uh, we'd love to talk with you and, and uh, ha help you consider that opportunity, whether it be for four o'clock or the morning service or whatever. So today we are finishing um, our, I'm going to finish out our series Inside Out as Randy finishes out his vacation. So this is the last message in our series Inside Out. And through this series, we've been looking at what we might call maybe some spiritual snapshots of ourselves that they kind of reveal what God sees when he looks inside of us. And, and what God wants in this is for us to see what he sees and so that we can live out the kind of life that he knows that we are fully capable of living. So along we talk with our potential, we've talked about things like potential to be wounded healers and jars of clay and ambassadors of Christ, joyful givers. Well, we also have the potential to be this, welcomers of weakness. Now, when you, you see this word, you think this word weakness, um, just curious, do you see that? Does it resonate as a positive word or a negative word? Kind of negative, I know what you're saying, right? Is it something you're saying like, yes, I would love to welcome this into my life? Or is it something you'd rather slam the door on, uh, click the deadbolt lock, and just keep it out, far out? I, I think we would all agree with that, that this isn't weakness, isn't something we would want to welcome into our life. We prefer to shut it out, slam the door on it. You know, it may be something that we have to tolerate in life, but it certainly isn't something to welcome and embrace and, and see in a positive thing, right? I read this article in GQ magazine. I'm not sure if it was Randy's copy or Thomas's copy. I think they both have subscriptions. <laughs> One of them left it on the conference table. Um, but anyhow, I picked it up and read it, and there was this article called Rules for When Guys Can Cry. So it kind of relates to this topic of weakness, right? I'll just give you some little tips here. Guys, it's okay to cry if you're in extreme pain. It said, like, say a piano was dropped from a 50-story window on your foot. So if you're going to cry from pain, it has to be at least an eight on the scale, okay, on the pain scale. The article said it's almost weird if you don't sob, cry, the first time you hold your newborn child. No shame in that, bro, the article said. It's definitely weird if you sob during sports events. Although you can cry if you're actually one of the athletes out on the field, but even then, you should cry only if you win, okay? If you're just a fan, the rule here is much simpler, never ever cry, all right, guys? Fans, don't cry. Never ever cry during an argument. This is important. As the woman who wrote the article said, Sorry, guys, but crying during an argument is kind of our thing. <laughs> All right? Just a little tip. I think we could add to that, and I think we could say it's okay to cry in church if you're the senior pastor, and if you are deeply moved by a touching story or the love of Jesus, but even then, it's only one time. Only once. I think that should be our rule. We'll pass that on. Now, I share all that to say that that has nothing to do with our message today. 
That's not the kind of weakness that we're talking about. You see, that, the word weakness, it's kind of very broad and it can mean a lot of different things. So I think it's really important that we start today by clarifying what, what we don't mean and what we do mean by weakness for our purposes today. So we're not talking about weakness as in men crying, all right? We're not talking about that. We're also not talking about weakness as in some kind of a temptation that we might have, something that tempts us to do something we shouldn't. Like I can totally admit my weakness is chocolate chip cookies. Step away from the cookies. I cannot do it. it Chocolate chip cookies are my weakness, and we all probably have that, but that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about weakness as in deficient skill levels. You know, like when, when you go to that job interview, and what's the question? You know, tell us your three biggest weaknesses. And you know that if you're being honest, you should actually say, well, my biggest weaknesses are being organized and showing up to work on time and meeting deadlines. <laughs> we're not going to say that, right? So instead, we say something like, I think my biggest weakness is that I work so hard that I make everyone else look like slackers. <laughs> you know, and they don't like that. We're not talking about that kind of weakness. Nor are we talking about weakness in terms of like character flaws. You know, someone who would say patience is a weakness of mine. That's not what we're talking about either. None of those are the kind of weakness that we're talking about today. So, so to get us where... I want us to go today, let me do it this way. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, okay? Have you ever had to deal with something that just completely overwhelmed you? You know, something that you felt totally inadequate to handle? You knew that you did not have what it takes. Have you ever had to endure uncomfortable circumstances for an indefinite period of time that just wore you down? You know, maybe it was something physical, maybe it was mental, maybe it was emotional, but it just drained you, absolutely drained you. And you just kept wondering, how am I going to survive this? I don't have what I need. Have you ever had to face something that just scared the heck out of you? You know, it just produced this overwhelming anxiety in you, and you thought, there's no way I can handle this. I just got to run. I just, I just need to hide. I got to escape this. Run away as far and as fast as I can. Have you ever had a relationship that just ripped your heart out? Spouse, child, parent, brother, sister, friend. Maybe the problem was between the two of you, or maybe it was that you had to stand on the sidelines and watch someone you love just destroy their life. And either way, your heart was just completely shattered utterly broken, and you had to just endure that for a long time? Have you ever had to walk through that lonely and painful journey of grief from losing a loved one? Circumstances, situations, conditions that just kind of bring us to the very end of ourselves, very uncomfortable, feeling like we're just at the end of our rope. That's the kind of weakness that we're talking about today, when we just feel overwhelmed, when we feel scared, when we feel so utterly discouraged, even depressed, worn out, exhausted, beaten up, chewed up, and spit out. I wonder if anybody knows what I'm talking about today. And I wonder how many walked in this morning, right smack in the middle of one of those scenarios. And I'm pretty sure we would all agree 
that life would be far better without these kinds of circumstances and situations. I mean, without a doubt, we'd all, I think, prefer a much smoother ride in this life, wouldn't we? Yeah. But God says, but God says, how many times do we say that in church, huh? But God says, but God says that he wants us to be welcomers of weakness. What? What? I mean, that just sounds crazy. What kind of a God wants that for his people? Well, that's what we're going to find out today. So we're going to jump in to the last portion of the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, as we finish out this book, we've kind of just been traveling through the book, pulling out major sections. And so we're going to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 today. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 10. You're going to find that on page 1309. And to give you a little background here, just to repeat some things, the Apostle Paul had planted a church in a city called Corinth. So the Corinthians were the people who lived in Corinth, and that's in the, uh, Greece. And 2 Corinthians is actually this very deeply personal letter that he wrote to the Christ followers there at this church that he had planted about five years ago, before, prior to his letter. So the letter reveals that this church in Corinth, man, it was just in trouble. It was a bit of a mess. It was just kind of weak and wavering, and, and it was struggling with division. You know, there was a lot of controversy and spiritual immaturity. And Paul's authority was even being undermined uh, by these opposing teachers who were misleading and dividing the church with, with their false teaching, as well as calling into question Paul's teaching and his apostleship, the fact that he had been sent by Christ himself to proclaim the good news and truth about God. And these guys were kind of questioning that. So in this letter, Paul has to do something that nobody likes to do. He's, he finds he's got to defend himself. Defend his, his apostleship. And that, that's just a crummy thing for anyone to have to do. In the previous chapter from what we're going to read today, we read that his defense, or we read about his defense, uh, he uses is how much he suffered for the sake of this gospel message that he was proclaiming. Suffering was part of the evidence, part of his defense, because he was saying that the truth about Christ the Creator the truth of how good and loving he is, that his love is a sacrificial love, that his resurrection from the dead demonstrates his power over sin and death. All of that Paul was saying that this truth is so incredibly important that I am willing to suffer for it. I'll suffer anything just to keep on proclaiming this message of truth and to help people come back into the relationship with their creator that they were designed for, that they could be restored to him through trusting him once again. He says, there's some evidence for you, how much I'm willing to suffer. But now as we come to chapter 12, he's going to lay out now, he kind of continues the conversation, and he's going to lay out another part of his defense. So we're going to start in verse 1. Everybody ready? He says this. He says, is it necessary to go on boasting? He says, though it's not profitable, I will go on. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, he was caught up to the third heaven. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise. And he heard things too sacred to be put into words, things that, that a person's not permitted to speak. On behalf of such an individual, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast. Who's Paul talking about? He's talking about himself. 
And he's trying to say, there's this thing that happened to me that, that I shouldn't be boasting about, but I have to boast because I have to defend myself. But he's telling them about something that actually happened to him. And he's saying, I don't know if it was actually in physical form, whether it was my body or whether it was my spirit, but he was granted this unbelievable privilege of being transported to the heavenly realms. And he was allowed to see some things and hear some things, this revelation from the heavenly realm. And he's basically saying, how about, is that, is that good enough evidence for you? Is that a good enough defense for my apostleship, my calling from God and the credibility of my teaching? But here's the interesting part. He doesn't just end with this piece of his defense. Mid-sentence, he actually now transitions kind of to this different topic because he sees this as an opportunity again to, to teach these people and to teach us some things. So he goes on in verse 5. He says, on behalf of such an individual, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except, except about my weaknesses. He says, for even if, I'm, even if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I would be telling the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one may regard my, me beyond what he sees in me or what he hears from me, even because of the extraordinary character of the revelations. Therefore, he says, that a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to trouble me. I asked the Lord three times about this, that it would depart from me. A thorn in the flesh was given to Paul, a messenger from Satan to trouble him. What the heck was that? I mean, what, what exactly is he talking about here specifically? We don't know. We don't know. Theologians for, for years and years and years, hundreds of years, they've, they've tried to figure this out and they, they offer different speculations, but that's all they are is guesses, speculations. We don't know for sure and we won't know for sure the exact what this thorn in the flesh exactly was until the day that we're transported to the heavenly realm. Some think it was like something that was actually physical, some kind of a physical ailment, and others say, no, it was something else. All we really know is what the scripture tells us, and the scripture tells us this, that it came from Satan and God allowed it. It originated from Satan. He was the one who brought it upon, but God allowed it. God allowed Satan to inflict Paul with this thorn in his flesh the way that he had allowed Satan to inflict Job in the Old Testament. And, and this thorn in the flesh, it weakened Paul. So much so that Paul asked God three times, please take it away. Please take it away. So why? If God is so good and if he's so loving, why in the world would he allow one of his greatest servants of all time to experience something like this? I mean, why would he allow Paul to be put in this weakened condition? You know, doesn't he need Paul to be strong, to carry out the mission that, that, that he's called him to do? So why would he put him in a weakened position when he needs Paul to be strong? Well, let's read on. Verse 8. Paul said, I asked the Lord three times about this, that it would depart from me. But he said to me, my grace is enough for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So then I will boast, Paul says, I will boast most gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may reside in me. Therefore, I'm content with weaknesses, with insults, troubles, persecutions, difficulties for the sake of Christ. For whenever I'm weak, then I am strong. 
You see, Satan thought that putting Paul in this weakened condition, that it would somehow slow Paul down, perhaps even stop him from continuing to proclaim the truth about Christ. But that's not at all what happened. Paul said it was in his weakness that the power of Christ could reside in him. That when he was weak, uh, when he was, weak he was actually his strongest, his best. Satan was completely duped. The same way he was duped when he saw the Son of God hanging on a cross, crucified, and he thought, ah, I've won. The Savior's dead. And then on the third day, he was resurrected. So that's our message today. When I'm weak, then I'm strong, because the power of Christ resides in me. I still got to ask why, though. Why? I mean, why can't the power of Christ reside in me without me being weak, you know? So maybe we need to unpack this a little bit more. And we actually need to go back and take a closer look at the text we read. Because if you notice, I left a little bit of something out there. In verse 7, we have two really important words. So that. So that. Those are really important because what they're saying, Paul says, there's a reason. He's saying that God has a purpose for allowing something in my life that I would surely slam the door on rather than welcoming it in. So that. Well, so that what? What did he say? He said, so that I would not become arrogant. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to trouble me. So that... I would not become arrogant. Must have been really important because he said it twice. The beginning of the sentence and the end of the sentence. So that, the reason being, so that I would not become arrogant. You see, Paul's explaining that an all-good and all-loving and all-wise creator knows that this thorn in his flesh, he knows it's necessary. He knows it's necessary. It's something that's needed. That having Paul, having us experience weakness is necessary. It's actually a preventative measure. Why? Why is it necessary? What's it preventing? So that we would not become what? Arrogant. So let's think about this word arrogance for a second. I mean arrogance. That's a strong word isn't it? And when you think about arrogance, what comes to your mind? I mean, I think most of us, we kind of think of that person who's perhaps really rich and famous and powerful, uh, that person who's got a lot of talent and a lot of intelligence, and so they got so much so, they kind of think they're better than other people, right? They're kind of superior. There's an egotistical, a cockiness, and so forth, arrogance. But arrogance can come in many shapes and sizes, and so I think today we need to expand our picture, our understanding of arrogance. And let's add in the word prideful as well, too, because the two are so closely related. So Paul acknowledged that there was the potential for him to become arrogant, prideful. And the same is true of us. You see, all human beings, we have this propensity toward pride and arrogance. All human beings includes you and me, too. And you see, the, the essence of pride and arrogance, if we just want to boil it down, I think it kind of boils down into two words. There's self-promotion 
And then there's self-reliance. It's all about ourselves. Self-promotion, it, it's just that idea the arrogant person has this elevated and exaggerated sense of their own importance. You know, they think they're a little bit better than everybody else, or maybe a whole lot better than others, you know? And so there's just a lot of self-promotion, self-promoting. But then there's also this belief that anything that they've obtained in this life, anything they've accomplished in this life, it's all of their own doing. You know, it's my power, my resources, uh, uh, my skill, my ability, my efforts, me, me, me. I don't need anybody for anything I've gained in this life. I've done it all myself. Self-reliance. And even those two, let's put them into just even simpler form for our purposes today. The arrogant, the prideful says I'm better than others, or at least they think it. And essentially they say, I don't need God. Self-promotion, self-reliance. I don't need God. And Paul, Paul, this great servant of Christ, he says, I'm susceptible to that, to pride and arrogance. So if he was, I'm pretty sure we are too. Because all human beings, even a follower of Christ, is susceptible to that. And here's the thing. We don't set out to become prideful and arrogant. You know, nobody makes this decision. I think I'm going to be a prideful, arrogant person. That, that's not how it happens. Especially a follower of Christ. It's something that we kind of slip into without even realizing it. You see, we start leaning in that direction. That direction of not needing God. And if we keep leaning in that direction, we eventually fully slide into it. We slide right into becoming prideful and arrogant. And here's the thing. You know what causes us to lean in the direction of, of not really needing God? The scary thing is what causes us to lean in that direction is something that we all desire. We actually desire it. and We have no idea that it leans us into that direction of not needing God. And it's this. A smooth ride. I mean, let's be honest, right? Isn't what we really want in life is a nice, nice, smooth, easy, comfortable ride through this life? It's true, right? But when we coast through life and the ride is smooth and it's easy, whether we realize it or not, we begin to feel like we don't really need God. We may not actually say it, we may not even actually think it, but we start living that way. And you see, as Christ followers, it's evidenced um, in a very, uh, a way that we can clearly see or measure. It, it, it's evidenced by a very shallow, perhaps even non-existent prayer life. You know, it's evidenced by little or no time spent reading and meditating on God's word, having him speak to us. And I'm not trying to point fingers or, or guilt trip anyone here. I mean, we're just talking openly and honestly here. But if we spend little to no time talking to God in prayer, if we spend little to no time listening to God speak to us through his word, then whether we mean it or not, what we're saying is that we don't really need God. Just a little bit of Jesus is enough. Just a little bit of Jesus Truth be told, we're really kind of okay with just a little bit of God, you know, when the ride is smooth. We, we pretty much 
We got things taken care of, right? You know, we're actually doing just fine. We're doing just fine at running our lives, aren't we? When the ride through life is smooth and easy and things are fine, we think we're fine, and then we begin to slide into that direction. Something the psalmist describes in this way. He says, because he is proud, that person doesn't turn to the Lord. There's no room for God in any of his thoughts. No room for God. Here's the thing about fine. Fine feels okay. It seems okay. It feels pretty comfortable, doesn't it? And it feels pretty safe. But the thing about fine is that fine is far from my best. Might be kind of easy. Might feel okay, safe and comfortable. But man, it is far from my best. Far from my best. Let me, let me tell you what happens when we're just living fine and we're far from our best. We miss out on a whole lot of things. You see, when I'm fine and there's little to no room for God, I lose out on that deep and intimate connection I'm meant to have with my creator. I'm not able to know and experience this deep love that he has for me, a love that's like no other love on this planet, even the closest love relationships. It doesn't even compare to the love the creator has for us, but I completely miss out on any kind of awareness and experience of that love. When I'm finding there's little to no room for God, I miss out on that just deep sense of satisfaction in life, joy and peace that my soul longs for, every soul longs for. When I'm finding there's no room for God, I miss out on a transformation of my character, you know, where, where I'm able to develop into a better person. I miss all that. I miss the opportunity to become a more beautiful, attractive, and loving person. When I'm fine and there's no room for God, I miss out on better relationships, you know, healthier relationships, stronger relationships, deeper connections with people, closeness, belonging, authentic community. I miss out on all that. When I'm fine and there's little or no room for God, I miss out on just incredible experiences and opportunities that God had planned for me in my life opportunities to meet people and to serve them and to help them and to love them and then discover gifts and abilities that he's given to me that I had no idea that I possessed, opportunities to partner with other people, to team together and accomplishing great things for God on this planet. And that's just naming a few, a few of the things that I miss out on when I'm fine and there's little room for God. Fine might feel okay, might be kind of comfortable, might feel safe. But fine is far from my best, far from it. And that's why the Proverbs, in the Proverbs, um, the writer Proverbs, in the, it's the book of wisdom. The writer Proverbs said this. He says, pride will ruin people. Pride will ruin people. And I, and I think, you know, we're familiar with the, the people who's, Lives are ruined or ruined because they've taken some big fall. It's that famous person, that powerful person, and they've taken a fall, you know, due to their pride. Pride goes before fall, and we watch it. It's all over the news, all over the headlines. Um, so many famous people. We read their headlines today. But I think more often, far more often than we have any idea, pride ruins most people in a more subtle insidious 
in less noticeable kind of way. And the ruin is in missing out what could have been. Missing out on what could have been. What their life could have been like and the person that they could have become because they had little to no room for God. Little to no room for God. So even Paul, he realized and he acknowledged that he himself had this potential to become prideful and arrogant, to slide into this exaggerated sense of self-importance and self-reliance, that even he could start needing less and less of God. If Paul knew that that was possible for himself, oh man, oh man, how much more I know it's possible for me then. And listen, I, I, as I was putting this message together and stuff, I'm like, I am preaching to myself today. I'm preaching to myself. I tell you, I know how easy it is to slide and define. It is so easy. And I know how when life gets easy and comfortable, I slip and define and I drift a little bit away from God. And if I keep going in that direction, I would go further and further and further. Just a little bit of Jesus and I'm fine. So that's why Paul welcomed weakness. He welcomed weakness because something happens when life get di gets difficult. Something changes when life gets tough. You see, when circumstances come our way that are overwhelming or they're scary or they're discouraging or they're exhausting and they bring us to the end of ourselves, something happens. Actually, I should say something has the potential to happen. And it's this. We start to live in reality. We start to live in reality. What are you talking about, Kim? We pack up and we move out of the fantasy world of fine that we created, the notion that we are fine with just a little bit of God, and we re-enter reality. The reality that we were designed for this ongoing, not an occasional, but an ongoing strong and vital connection with Christ our Creator. In fact, we are desperately dependent on this ongoing strong and vital connection with him. We just don't realize it because we're living in fantasy land, the world of fine. I'm fine. I'm fine with just a little bit of God. That's all I need, just a little bit. You and I are desperately dependent on oxygen, aren't we? We don't think about it. We don't necessarily realize it, you know, recognize it from day to day, right? But there's this vital, ongoing connection between us being able to breathe and take in oxygen and our ability to stay alive, right? Direct correlation. You know, remove our ability to breathe and take in oxygen, and it is not long before we die. Well, our souls are just as dependent on this vital, ongoing, strong connection with our creator. I mean, just like oxygen to our lungs. Without it, we're dying. We're dying. We just don't realize it because it's a longer and slower kind of death. But the person we're meant to be is dying. The life we're meant to live, it's dying. We just don't realize it because everything seems so fine just seems fine. Jesus tells us this truth about the vital connection that we're meant to have with him, our creator. It's recorded in God's, John's gospel and Jesus himself. He tells us, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Get your life from me. A branch cannot survive 
disconnected from the vine. Get your life from me. Then I will live in you and you will give much fruit, will be productive, growing people. You can do nothing without me. You can do nothing without me. He's saying this is just reality. This is, this is just reality. It's how I designed you. He says, my intention when I designed you, when I created you, was that we would live intimately connected to one another all the time. That you would not just live with my presence, but that you would live from my presence. Get your life from me. Folks, we are never fully human, fully alive, experiencing our best unless our life is constantly connected to and integrated with Christ unless we're living with his presence and from his presence, unless we are getting our life from him. And that's why Paul welcomed weakness. Because you see, he wanted to stay in reality. The thorn in his flesh, it made him so strongly aware of his desperate need for a deep and vital connection with Christ. The need that is always there, we are just more aware of that need in our times of weakness. So Paul knew that he was better when he was weak. That weakness, the weakness actually brought out his best. It brought out the best in him. Why? Because weakness caused him to come to the end of himself and then desperately cling to his creator. And it was in that weakness that, that actually where Paul discovered he was his strongest. In my weakness, I am strong. I'm content with my weaknesses, as said Paul, because whenever I'm weak, then I am strong. Why? Why am I strong? Because I am clinging to Christ, my creator, and it is no longer my strength that I'm relying on, self-reliance. No longer it is the power of Christ residing in me. I'm getting my life from him. It's not the weakness that makes us strong. It's what we do when we are weak. It's what we do. It's the running and the clinging to Christ that makes us strong. Listen to how Paul explained it to the Corinthians in the beginning of his letter uh, to them, the book of 2 Corinthians. In the beginning of this letter, chapter 1, he said this. He said, it was so bad. It, it was so bad. He's talking about the circumstances, the situation that they were in as they were proclaiming the gospel, the good news, telling the truth about Christ, the truth about life. He's like, we're doing this, and the situation they in were so bad. They were suffering and being persecuted. It was so bad that we didn't think we were going to, we didn't think we were going to be able to make it. Man, again, that time in life, we're like, I'm not going to survive this. I don't, I don't know how I'm going to make it. We felt like we'd been sent to death row. We thought it was all over for us. This is it. This is the end. But then what? He says, as it turned out, it was the best thing that could have happened. What? It was the best thing that could have happened. Why? Self-reliance turns into God-reliance. Instead of trusting in our own strength or our wits, our own wisdom, to get out of it, we were forced. We were forced. We were forced to trust God totally. And he says, not a bad idea since he's the God who raises the dead. I think he's pretty trustworthy. I think he might know a thing or two more than what I do. Wow. As it turned out, as it turned out, it was the best thing that could have happened. The very best. Those words echo what a young woman told me just a couple weeks ago. A woman I'd met 
at the Maryland Correctional Institute in Jessup. And it was a woman who was one of the inmates there. You see, I had the privilege of attending a ceremony for some of the female inmates there in the women's prison who had graduated from a Bible institute that they offered at this prison. I'm telling you, it was just an incredible blessing. I mean, that I was so blessed by the whole experience. And one of the things that amazed me is I looked around at the women and I just saw so much joy in their faces. I was just kind of blown away. Joy, joy because of their connection with Christ and their connection with each other. The connection with each other, not as cellmates, but as a community of women who love Christ and love one another. It was absolutely beautiful. I met this one young woman named Shelby who just had the sweetest and the most beautiful smile. And at one point, as she was talking with the group of us at the table, she said something along the lines of this. I wish I had the direct quote, but I couldn't remember exactly. But she essentially said something like, I certainly don't want to be locked up here in this place, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. And from what she shared, she, she was explaining how she wouldn't trade the genuine, deep, loving friendships that she had made with the women in this group that had meant so much to her, nor would she trade the strong and vital connection with Christ, her creator, that she had come to experience while there in that place. She would not have chosen this way, but now she wouldn't trade it for anything. Her words, she wouldn't trade it for anything. Shelby didn't choose to be in the circumstance that she found herself, but she did choose how she responded in the situation. You see, she could have chosen to cling to self-pity, to cling to anger and bitterness and resentment, but she didn't. She chose to cling to Christ, her creator. And because of that, as it turned out, it was the best thing that could have happened. Best thing that could have happened. Look, I know none of us want to be locked up in circumstances or situations in life that overwhelm us. We don't want to be there. We don't want to be locked up in that. We don't want to be locked up in situations that scare us or wear us down. We would never choose that for our lives. But it's in these times, it's in these situations that they lead us back into reality, you know? where we reconnect with Christ the way that we're designed to live and be connected to him and this ongoing strong and vital connection, clinging to him, branch to vine, oxygen to lungs, a connection that brings out our best, one that allows us to keep on doing the will of God in our lives and keep on doing the work of God, a connection that causes us to become the, the, the most attractive and beautiful people that we were created to be, doing the good and loving things that our God, our creator, created us to do in this life. And so how I hope and pray that we all leave here today no longer wanting that smooth ride in life, no, no longer settling for a fine life. It's fine. I'm living in the fancy land of fine. But instead, instead desiring our best life, our best and I hope and pray that we will all see weakness in a whole new way 
as a result of our time together today is something that we can welcome into our lives because it keeps us living in reality. It keeps us in that ongoing vital connection with Christ, desperately clinging to him every day for all that we need, all the big needs and all the little ones too, that we truly every day get our life from him. That's what I'm hoping for all of us, you know, that we would truly be welcomers of weakness, that, um, that we'd be able to understand, truly understand and embrace what Paul came to understand and embrace. That when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong, you know. When I'm weak, that's when I can be my best, if, if I desperately cling to Christ, my creator. Let's pray together. Lord, sometimes things are really hard to hear, you know. Um, and even probably as we may have sat here and heard this truth today, it's still, it's going to be hard for us. You know us so well. Um, and you know that, that thing we struggle with, that, that desire of just really wanting life to be easier, wanting things to be more comfortable, that smooth ride. But God, I just pray um, I pray that the things you, you communicated to us today, what you taught us, helped us to see, Lord, that it'll just sink deeper and deeper into our minds. And that even in the midst of whatever we're facing right now, the circumstances and the situations that are uncomfortable, that we will come and we will cling to you and then we will experience and we will know what it is to have the power of Christ, our Lord and Savior, residing in us. And may that just bring us back then, day after day after day, that may we come to you in a vital, strong connection and get our life, all that we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.